why in the West in 1500 was it impossible for most people to not believe in God? I mean, you had to believe in God. There was no way really to live without God. And in a short 500 years later, um, it's actually quite the quite the opposite. You've probably heard this one before, but the church is changing. Some people would say it's declining or even dying. It seems like every week you hear stories about the disappearance of organized religion, churches that are struggling, congregations closing their doors, and people who are spiritual but not religious. Dr. Andrew Root is a writer, professor, and theologian who has spent the past few years asking this question. What's happening to the church? Is it really shrinking? or dying? And how did we get to this point? Most of Andy's recent work centers on the philosopher and social theorist Charles Taylor. And most of Taylor's work tells the story of how the church started at the center of all public life, but slowly gave way to a more secular age, where the church is separate from society. And for people like Andy who work in this world of theology and philosophy, Charles Taylor's work is a big deal. Again, Here's Andy. I think that Charles Taylor is the fir- has written the first philosophy book in the 21st century that will be read in the 22nd century. I mean, I really do think that, you know, in, in the pantheon of kind of Western philosophical giants, Charles Taylor will be there. Um, now, his career has, has been mainly in the 20th century. The book that I think is really relevant that we're going to probably be circling around for at least all the episodes of, of season one is a secular age. But uh, he wrote a, a really important book in what was it like ninety four ish called the Sources of the Self, and and has been uh, he's not he's like ninety two now, so he's he's been on the scene for a long time. So he he gives those of us who uh, you know if you if you don't have a great uh, epic uh, book in uh, out yet, you could in your you know seventies. 90s. 90s, yeah. So that, that young exactly. adult novel series that I've always wanted to write. <laughs> That's it's right. coming. Yeah, your Harry, your Harry Potter is is going to come. 2065. Right. Book it. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to New Time Religion, a podcast with Andy Root and me, Derek Tronsgard. And in this first season of our podcast, we're exploring how the church in the West went from being the center of life and society and culture to where it is today, as it moves further out to the margins. And on the one hand, when people start talking about this sort of thing, how society is changing and becoming more and more secular, most people start talking about how the church is declining or shrinking or dying. A new study on the changing U.S. religious landscape shows we are losing our religion. The number of Americans who don't affiliate with a particular religion has grown to approximately 56 million in recent years. Attendance at churches and other places of worship is in decline right across the country, forcing a number of those churches to close their doors. Does religious faith play as strong a role in our daily lives as it used to? A new report from the Pew Research Center shows that the percentage of Americans who say they believe in God, pray daily, and attend church regularly is declining. But according to Taylor, this isn't the whole story. This isn't the real story. Sure, there's some loss, there's some decline, things look different, but the real story of what's going on is a bit more complicated. And I think one of the really interesting things that goes back to kind of what you're saying about the church and change is that for Taylor, it is not a subtraction story. That we usually kind of think of like, well, 
once we lost this and lost that, once people didn't go to their neighborhood churches anymore, or once, you know, we didn't do the liturgy the exact right way, or once there was no more prayer in school. Well, you know or what whatever. the big one is? What's that? At least in Minnesota here. Once the hockey teams oh, yes. started practice That's right. on Sundays. Right. Once youth- everybody <laughs> left the church. Right. Once youth sports bled in and then everything was over. And he just doesn't he you know, I mean the, the kind of the kind of view he wants to have of of what's happened in the West, he just doesn't think that that's really tells the story. Obviously, there's some subtractions and some losses here, but there's also a lot of gains that we've had. I mean, that's what's actually kind of hard about Taylor, and I think something that really resonates with me is he's very erratic. Like he he always wants to say, "Yeah, that was bad, but this was good." Inside of this, we lost this, but we gained this, and so he's never going to like demonize and say like. There's so many authors, other authors out there who are like, modernity is the worst thing that's ever happened. Yeah. You know, and I think some of this stuff is really worth reading. And then there's, of course, others that are like, you know, modernity is the greatest thing ever. And we're yeah. finally going to progress into something meaningful and just. And, um, and so he wants to kind of uh, ride the balance between those, those few things. So what Taylor would say is that the real story isn't a story of subtraction and loss, but instead a shift in our social imagination. It's a new variation on the story that we as communities and cultures tell ourselves to keep the wheels of society turning. It's the story of a move from an enchanted world, a world full of magic and mystery and supernatural forces, to a disenchanted one. A world of rationality and logic and process and mind over matter. Now this is kind of a strange idea, especially to people like us who grew up and who live in a fully disenchanted world. But our ancestors really did live in a world of enchantment. Almost everyone believed in magic. Everyday ordinary people believed in spirits and demons and supernatural forces and sickness and drought and disease and poverty and all sorts of bad things were said to be caused by dark powers beyond this world. And the only thing, the only thing that could keep all of these mysterious, enchanted enemies at bay was the power of God Almighty, which flowed through the church. And it was up to the local priest or pastor to be the keeper and distributor of this holy power. So what did a pastor do? A pastor... Well, the pastor possessed, held on to, delivered, um, managed, oversaw the sacred things. So, you know, like we have all sorts of stories in church history. Um, Keith Thomas has written this really great book called, uh, I think it's called Religion in the Decline of Magic. And he's and he shows all, all these ways that like the pastor, if you could get your hands on church keys, that mm-hmm. held power. If you could get your hands on coins that had been put into the offertory, it had power mm-hmm. um like if obviously if you could like get to the to the cloak or the elbow of the of the of the priest that that had significance so and this is like all the relics and this yeah and, and this, all that. this yeah. is how you kind of build up until you know 1517 and you know luther's complete opposition to the way uh relics have been used to make money in many mm-hmm. ways and how um you know indulgences are used and things like that but the point is is that it the, that there was this sense that things themselves were charged with meaning like i spent two months in europe about five weeks in paris uh in the fall and you know you go into 
Sean Chappelle or you go into Notre Dame and these incredibly beautiful buildings, you know, that still thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people go through um, annually, maybe millions of people go through annually. And um, what are they? Well, they're relic, they're reliquies. Mm-hmm. Like the reason that Sean Chappelle is built, this incredible stained glass that like, you stand inside of it, you feel like you're in a freaking lantern. Like it's so unbelievably beautiful, and it was all built because Louis Saint Louis um, had received had what he thought was Jesus crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when you have the thing? You build an incredible building to house the thing like that's for modern people we just don't think that way right like you create a big building but you create a big building like u.s bank stadium for the vikings because because it has function to it because it can do communal good because it can be multi-use like we use all to justify the tax the the taxing minnesota citizens millions of dollars like it's all about functional use Mm -hmm. right like but that's not how you would think if you were like a medieval person that the thing itself uh, had the power. power. I mean, it it literally is white magic. Yes. That's, that's the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this becomes part of the issue is that, that the theologians, even in medieval Christendom were never really comfortable with it being with, with the people presuming this was white magic because it was much more of a, you know, more complicated theological right. issue. Yeah. But it was really hard for the people. But on a popular level. Yeah, but on a popular level, it's really hard when the priest is like, this is bread. Now I say these words over it. Abracadabra, it is the very flesh of Christ. It's pretty hard to not think, if I could get that, if I could dare, if I could dare get that flesh out of here, I could feed it to my well, sick pig yeah, and my that's sick pig would live. tradition where people stick out their tongues yeah, 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 to receive yeah. it because they wanted to make sure that they were taking it and not bringing it home to... Yeah, man. It's like when you watch uh, when you when you watch um, a gangster movie. Like when you watch... I, think I was thinking of The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Godfather, right? Like when uh, that you you take the you take the host into your mouth and then you have to stick out your tongue because people, uh, brazen people, um, I'm not sure what century this was, you know, 13th, 14th century something, people, brazen people, were taking this out of the cathedral and feeding it to their pigs and putting it in their fields because they were worried about drought and other things because they because it, it held the power it held the power it held the power the, the yeah. thing itself was power now it wasn't just the church that was immersed in this age of enchantment In an upcoming book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, Andy points to this scene in the Netflix show The Crown, which illustrates this. And if you haven't seen the series, it tells the story of a young Queen Elizabeth II coming to the throne in the 1950s. And there's this great scene where she's being crowned, and her uncle, who is Edward VIII, and he actually used to be the king, but he abdicated the throne to live in America with his wife. He's watching the coronation on TV in New York. And he's at this high society party in the 1950s in this room full of Americans, and all of the Americans are just making fun of the pomp and circumstance of the ceremony. They're baffled by it. All of the weird rituals and symbols and scepters and crowns and bells and smells. Now these people, they're living in the modern age of disenchantment and they're watching this unfold while the coronation ritual itself is steeped in the enchanted world. And at one point, one of the American guys looks at the TV and scoffs and says, this is crazy. But Edward corrects him. The oils and oaths 
orbs and scepters, symbol upon symbol, an unfathomable web of arcane mystery and liturgy, blurring so many lines, no clergyman or historian or lawyer could ever untangle any of it. It's crazy. On the contrary, it's perfectly sane. Who wants transparency when you can have magic? Who wants prose when you can have poetry? Pull away the veil, and what are you left with? An ordinary young woman of modest ability and little imagination. And wrap her up like this, anoint her with oil, and hey presto, what do you have? A goddess. Who wants transparency when you can have magic? Enchantment isn't crazy, it's perfectly sane. Magic, ritual, symbols, power, these are the marks of the enchanted world our ancestors lived in. But in all honesty, most of us are the New Yorkers watching that scene on TV, looking at it with quaint interest or maybe even a little derision. So what happened? How did we go from an enchanted world full of mystery and magic to a rational, logical, disenchanted world where you can receive images and sounds beamed across the ocean onto a TV set? Now it's here that the story actually takes an interesting turn. Because in order to make that big of a shift from this enchanted world to a disenchanted world, you need something radical. Something revolutionary. You need a reformation in the way that people see the world and how they make meaning from it. And so one of the big moves of modernity that moves us towards a secular age is this idea that... Um, that the thing itself is no longer charged. And both Luther and Calvin make that move. They actually have theological, they're uncomfortably, they're uncomfortable theologically with the way that communion can be seen as a way of actually controlling God. Yeah. So they want to give, they, they want to protect God's, Calvin would say sovereignty. Sovereignty, yeah, uh, yeah. But they want to protect God's sovereignty or they want to protect God's otherness. Or agency. Or, yeah, yeah, by not, or protect God's, I think Luther might say something more like protect God's distinctive word mm -hmm. so that um, so that you can't somehow because you control the Eucharist, you control God. Mm -hmm. So they want to put a separation in that. Well, that starts us down a long road of where things themselves aren't charged, but uh, but actual but wills. Wills become important. Will you will to make this important? Yeah. Kids, we need a pizza party today so you feel like this is really fun because through funness, that's not even a word, but through all this kind of fun experience, you'll uh, you'll more willfully, you'll more willfully uh, decide that you want this to be part of your life. And so herein lies the big shift. In the old age of enchantment, the story goes that you are not in control. Your very being is open, it's porous, it's full of holes, and all of these dark demonic forces on the outside threaten your life and your livelihood and your family, and the only thing able to keep them at bay is the power of God which can only come through the church. 
But when all these old systems are reformed, when Luther and Calvin and King Henry VIII and everybody else starts to challenge and confront the political power of the church, the cracks start to form in the wall. The house of cards starts to tumble, and pretty soon the social imagination of society, that big story that we all tell ourselves that creates the fabric of culture, it starts to tell a new story. And the new story goes like this. You are in control of your destiny. You don't need to worry about things that go bump in the night. You, as an individual, can make logical, rational decisions that are good for you as an individual. And as the centuries roll on, people begin to take this story to its logical conclusion. That in order to live a good life, to be a good person, and to find meaning, you don't actually need the church. And in fact... You can get by just fine without it. And in one of the big ironies of church history, the Reformation itself is the catalyst for the arrival of the secular age. The Reformation's challenge to the church and subsequent upheaval of society are what start us down the road to disenchantment. So we're pulled back into these things, and it doesn't take much for us to be re re-enchanted but the order of our society doesn't reward that and that's the big difference about being in a secular age like i could even believe there are demons everywhere but if i go to dunder mifflin to sell paper i well maybe this is a bad example because michael scott would probably i'm loving this example already you you keep rolling michael scott would probably let me do whatever i wanted but you you can't really sell paper and participate in the in the modern economy by thinking this way, by functioning this way. I really have to function more in a disenchanted, more in a technical, rational way to be able to do anything at all. You know what I mean? So like Dwight has to leave Shroot Farms at home. He does. He steps into the he, office. Yes, he has to leave yes. like those ancient kind of practices. And Cousin Moe's. And Cousin, Mo- and well, Cousin Moe's. Cousin yeah. Moe's is completely out of place in at, <laughs> at Dunder Mifflin's kind of technical thing. And you see how there, there's circles of that because when, when the corporate office shows up, you even have to be more kind of technical, framed around markets, money making, things like things like that. Yeah. So, um, so that keeps it from flaring up because you individually could believe it you could actually read articles you could actually tell your daughter you know don't 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 do bloody mary at a, at a sleepover but at another level it doesn't ever kind of flare up into a societal consciousness because of these other other structures other that things exist. that are keeping it down they keep it down yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and so here we are living in a society that's shifted from a world of enchantment to a world of disenchantment. Now this is a big deal for the church because it creates an identity crisis. In the enchanted world, the purpose of the church was clear, but in a disenchanted world, not so much. And as society in the secular age has become more and more about individuals and their own individual desires and wills and choices, we've morphed church into this participatory thing. Like, now you choose whether or not you want to come to church, or you choose to have your kids baptized, or you choose which service style you like better, or you choose which church functions you're a part of, or... You can choose not to go to church altogether. And all of these are perfectly legit choices in the age 
of disenchantment. And as society becomes more and more complex, and as individuals are offered more and more and more choices, the church of disenchantment that's all about willful participation and choice finds itself competing with other things, like soccer practice and weekends and work retreats. And this is where we're at. This is the struggle. So where do we go from here? But so, I mean, this becomes a huge challenge because the more that things become disenchanted, it does lead to an identity crisis of the church. And it's such a longer history because we've had about 400 years of not feeling like we had to answer answer disenchantment with enchantment. Though, you know, I mean, this is, a, this is not quite a fair statement, but Pentecostalism in its own way finds a re-enchantment inside like modern structures. Um, but we, we felt like we haven't had to do that because of the way religion could play in and things like that. So what do we do? But once that starts to dissipate, like what do we do? So I think our real challenge is, is that we have to find ways to talk about something sacramental. Like there still has to be a sacramental framework, I think, in the Christian imagination, a way that the infinite participates in the finite and vice versa, the way that the divine encounters the human, things like that. You mean just the sense that there is an otherness? Yeah. In God. I mean that that there's more than this. Yeah. Or that what you do as a pastor isn't just to ma- manage like religious institutional functions. Mm-hmm. That there's got to be some way that something, well, we'll use Taylor's language, something transcendent participates even in our very ordinary lives. And I think that becomes a challenge is how do you do that? Because you didn't have to make that, you didn't have to necessarily make that case if you're living in 1492. Like, obvious like completely obvious that there is a god and that you need this god or bad crap can happen now i mean down my street i'm sure there's multiple people who never think about it never are concerned about it no they don't need it to protect them from any kind of demons but and this is our real challenge and what we're kind of feeling the loss of also don't think they need any kind of religious function in their life to be good people or to live a meaningful life they can find that somewhere else so i just think that unless we get back to some kind of sense of divine encounter some kind of sense of making a case that even in this secular age there's a a kind of sacramental reality then we're lost so the way that some have talked about this is the need for um a kind of participatory ontology, a way that God participates in our being, participates in the being of the world. And I think that becomes a hard work, how we, how we figure, out, figure that out and do that. New Time Religion is a podcast featuring Dr. Andrew Root with me, Derek Tronsgaard. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend or two about our show. You can find out more about Andy's books at his website, andrewroot.org, or order them on Amazon. His most recent series focuses on Charles Taylor's work in the secular age. The first book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, is available now. And the second book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, is coming out on June 18th. 
New Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out at alterguild.org for other great shows. New episodes of this show in our first season will be coming out every week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week for another round of New Time Religion. <laughs>